I think one of the big issues in our day, folks, is this, is that we have to find a way back to recent around Jesus. And I mean this not piously, I mean taking Jesus as the absolute definitive center, defining center of the, of, the, of the church and our theology, the re-Jesusing dynamic. Uh, I think that this is the most fundamental recalibration that we can make in our time. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Communitas podcast, and this is a really exciting one for me. I hope I don't fanboy out too much. Today, we are joined by Alan Hirsch, and my friend, you have uh, meant so much to me in my journey, and uh, I know that you've meant a lot to a lot of people uh, within Communitas and around the world. So welcome to our podcast. We're also joined uh, with Joy today and John Rittner who's known Alan for quite many uh, years as well. So, Alan, welcome. So good to be with you. What a privilege. What a joy. <laughs> what a joy. Yeah, thanks. Hey, um, just, just to get started, I, a lot of people have read a lot of your materials and, and books and have attended conferences, um, but let's get a little bit of a meta-narrative for a second. How does a South African Jew find himself living in Australia and the author of what many would say is some of the most profound understanding of the next generation church. Well, well, it, 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 this has been me cheeky boy, right? But say marijuana had a bit to do with it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's only a, a Jew in South Africa can come to know Jesus. I would say, you know, I have to recommend that. <laughs> I love it. Burning no. man. Burning man. <laughs> Strikes again. No, so, no, but like early on in my, say, like grew up in right, apartheid South Africa. <clears throat> and that's a that's a thing. And it was very difficult for me um, because even though I was white and was given the privilege of white status, which is in itself highly problematic, um, I was still Jewish. And so in a kind of, um, well, I wouldn't call him neo-Nazi, but very close to it a very, very uh, nationalistic kind of uh, state. Uh, it was difficult, and so I had to fight my way through school. It was, you know, and then I had to do the military, which was not, you know, something I wanted to do. So, again, I'd say, like, you know, and then um, in the military, caught up with some, you know, made some friends that were also happened to be uh, smokers of marijuana. And that actually this was really helpful in me, we we became believers. I mean, I became a believer in that circle when the guy was leading the group, so to speak, I had this encounter with the Holy Spirit in that church one weekend and brought Jesus back into the equation. Right. And for me, this was catalytic and it led to, you know, ultimately two years, three years later, conversion that was pretty profound. Wow. But um, yeah, so I'm very thankful to God for that story. But it was difficult, the difficult years of the South African years. Yeah. The, the, so Jewish and heritage, but a, a practicing Jew at the time, was that something important to your family? Well, <clears throat> for, for Jews, you know, Jude, Judaism doesn't have to necessarily be practicing. So no, I wouldn't say my family was religious, but I was by mitzvah and we went, you know, we're like nominals, I guess. We'd go three, four times a year to the synagogue at the key high holidays and all that stuff. So um yeah, so I wouldn't say no, but the identity is there, and and so you know, for Jews, it's both national and religious, you know, identities that that play. 
Right. And again, I was reminded of that every day in the racist kind of country where I was the effing Jew. So right. you couldn't get away from it. You know what I'm saying? And um, so I thought, just leave me alone. I'm a human being. You know, I don't want to have to fight my way through school. I was quite good, by the way. So I had a lot of fights at school. And I, I, I know I don't look like much, but I was pretty cool. I, I was pretty good. <laughs> well, Interesting I, history. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want to go face to face with you in a dark alley. Let's put it that way. But uh, but I, I wouldn't think of you as the fighting type either. You seem like such a person of peace. So. I am. I never liked fighting, but again, I had to because well, my <clears throat> I went to a school full of bullies, and so again, it was deep in the culture. Yeah. So. My life was over if I didn't defend myself, but it did teach me some tricks, you know. So, so the idea, I'm not, I'm not intimidated by bullies, and I also think that for me, apartheid was authority. So, and I knew apartheid was wrong, so I never just can't toe to authority. I respect it, but I don't just necessarily assume its correctness. And I think that's featured in something. If I have something of a prophetic streak, it would be that capacity to you know, speak truth to power and sometimes stand up against it, mm. you know, when it's necessary. I don't like it, but it has to be done at times, yeah. Well, and and being in the career you are, and your career is multifaceted, but certainly as an author and with some of the um, exposure, if you will, of the way church has been and thoughts about the way church could be, you've probably had to have a pretty big backbone to take on Mm-hmm. What, what has well, that been like? Yeah, well, so, okay, so it was harder for me in Australia than it was in America. So I spent 14 years, as you know, Jeff, in, in America, and they were very, very profoundly, very good years, um, at least, you know, until the last you know, eight or so years when you had all the political turmoil and ferment that was going around, which changed the equation for me in a big way, reminded me a little bit too much of South Africa in some ways mm-hmm. and my Jewish heritage. But, um, you know, I think in Australia, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, you have to be quite tough because it's the church here and church leaders here tend to be somewhat insecure. Because they're doing it tough, they often compare themselves against you. So they, they really can't easily celebrate someone else's wins. And so it becomes quite a, it's quite a tough environment. And so even like being a, something of an entrepreneur and a pioneer, we started Forge. Um, John, of course, knows about forging i think jeff you do as well sure but you know that was you know we had to go up against up against the grain and we had all our seminaries trying to close us down because we were threatening to them and all that so it was much tougher there i mean they tried to run me out of town a few times but i guess if it doesn't kill you it makes you stronger what was the primary resistance (sighs) well well what forge was trying to do is to say we needed to adopt a missionary stance in relationship to our culture. We, up to that point, had church planters that were being trained in, in Bob Logan's kind of Church 101 kind of thing, which is kind of a set of cassette tapes. Yeah. You can still remember back to that. But it was very formulaic style church planting, you know, where you just presumed the understanding of church and you just, you know, imposed it wherever you went. So, And, and by the way, Bob changed his, his whole thinking on that, by the way, as he went. But uh, that's all we had, and we knew it wasn't working. And because we had to act like missionaries in Australia, that we're not only because of the subculturization of society, and we found ourselves, we were in the inner city of Melbourne, 
which was very subculturally, you know, gendered. And, you know, so we had to like, we were like in subcultural Papua New Guinea and we needed to think about which, you know, is a place of 900 language groups, um, different people groups. And, um, you know, it's an it's a anthropologist's dream, but a missionary's nightmare. Mm. Well, how do you actually reach 900 different people groups? Well, that was really what we were trying to tussle with in the inner city of Melbourne, because while well, they weren't 900, well, they might have been, but it was dynamic and it was like tribes. You know, there's all this new tribalism going down. <laughs> so we had to learn some skills. <laughs> so I think that was good for us. And, um, and um, but... You know, but that was difficult, and and again, because it, and this was really the subs, substance of um, some of the stuff in church in, in the shaping of things to come, where we began to kind of formulate that idea that we have to be a missionary people to the West again. And this was, of course, Newbegin's contribution, which made a lot of sense to me, yeah, um, because we were experiencing it on the ground. So there was a lot of change there, and I think that was often resisted by in the church <clears throat> because it threatens its status quo and you're asking questions of the, the the primary paradigm and metaphor of the church saying and and in case of the the seminaries we were saying we want to train people for that kind of mission mm. we knew they weren't doing it we did some research and of the thousand or so students in seminaries in our city at any given time only 30 of them per year, per per thousand went to do church planting Mm -hmm. We got to interview some of those 30, and we asked them, did you feel prepared for the kind of work that you're doing? And they all said, no, we weren't. We felt called to it, and we had to work it out for ourselves. And so we wanted to create a system that was designed to train and support people to think differently and and act differently and, you know, perhaps dream up the kind of church that we wanted to worship in, which, of course, challenged the status quo again, too. So it was challenging. I was more of a hothead too. I have to kind of take some blame for it too. <laughs> I'm a little more gentle now. Funny how so that, that happens. Gentleness <laughs> come out of those experiences. You know, it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger, but I think also makes you more gentle. Yeah, well, you hope as you get old, you might become a little more patient because you realize things don't always change it, <laughs> you know, when you want them to change. Mm -hmm. But I also think... Um, I think kind of was necessary for some um, challenge to the system, which I think jars mm -hmm. it. But I, you know, we're now back in Australia, friends, and I, and you might have an Australian audience listening here, but I don't mind saying it. I'm, I'm quite depressed about how boring and unevent, unevent, uh, unimaginative mm -hmm. the church here really has become. It's just gone back to kind of a, a, good at being attractional in a kind of boring kind of way, you know, so they're very good practitioners, but there's very little by way of experiment. We cannot afford that. We are going backwards. We've known this for many years. It's not like a surprise for us. We are, you know, at best counts, less than or two and a half percent of our population consider themselves evangelical. And that's not even attendance. That's just identity in our senses. It goes, it's, you know, we don't even get close to that in attendance. So we're in big trouble here. And I'm surprised that people don't feel that more deeply. Hmm. Yeah. Where, where in the world do you see that kind of experimentation? Because uh, I, I, I would like to think that we're seeing that in the United States, but the, the truth is 
it's in pockets for sure. Um, What are your impressions of where in the world this is really happening? Well, yeah, this is a big question, you know, because yes, there are in the States some very, very promising pockets, I think is a way to say it. Um, For the most part, the paradigm there is so incredibly set and in church growth kind of paradigms that, um, yeah, very few break out of that. However, some have, and when they do, you know, they're demonstrating proof of concept as we speak. So much of the underground movements in Kansas City uh, and then Tampa, uh, people like that are doing a crackhot job and articulating it really well. And I've been to both those contexts, for instance, and I find I'm so impressed with them. Spirituality is like lively. The mission is strong, you know. The communities are very, very rigorous and beautiful. I mean, really beautiful and full of life, you know, really, really good. So very promising. And, uh, yeah, we've got to support them in more ways. Our future in so many ways depends on, you know, these small experiments, really, that if they can prove concept, they're going to break break the code and they change the shift the tracks of history change yeah. change the game yeah. but and, and so europe parts of europe i would put parts of england particularly um <clears throat> at least in the last 10 15 years have been quite strong on trying to find new expressions for what they call it fresh expressions and there's been some amazing work that's come out of that very creative work still marginal but still very creative. And I think because they've been forced to, to discover that, you know, that modality as well. So yeah. simply by virtue of them, you know, they experience an incredible amount of, well, they're dying. Yeah. You would hope that, that you know, they find new, new forms. Yeah. So 2003, uh, this, the first book I was exposed to uh, of your writing uh, and Mike too, um, the shaping of things to come. <laughs> I'm not being lazy, but but I, I I do want to read just the very first line after you must read this bit first, which is <laughs> in this book expect to encounter revolutionary ideas that will sometimes unnerve you. Um, and I'm going to jump around here a little bit. It was from this book, although. I'd have to find the exact place where you use this language, but where the idea of missional kind of came into play for me and changed my paradigm uh, at the time, working at a very large mega church that experienced rapid growth into other ways of being the church instead of doing church. Is it, is it still revolutionary and does this still unnerve us? Well, it, it, it's a funny story about the unnerving nature of that book. <clears throat> I remember one vividly one experience of this dude who came up to me and he had this copy of the book in front of him and it was like busted. It was really, you know, it, it had been used, shall we say. And he said, like, I would read the book. And he said, like, I, th- I throw it across the room, right? It's like he was so angry with it. And then he'd slowly go and pick it up again and, like, throw it across the room. He said, like, it must have done that quite a few times. And this really busted up looking book. And I thought I should have really taken a photo of it, but I didn't. But um, it, it, the book had that kind of effect on people um, because it basically did challenge the prevailing paradigm, which is largely goes un, 
conscious, you know, it's largely unconsciously held. You know, we don't know who discovered water, but be pretty darn sure it wasn't the fish who just happens to swim in the water. So until events come along to kind of show us, you know, the nature of water, where you become conscious of these things, which, um, you know, is unnerving, to say the least, um, because you get to see the frailties and flaws in the system. Until they come along, you often just, you know, swim in the water. And I think that book kind of was, um, yes, it was a bit of a jar to many people in the water. And it was it was quite widely read. It landed at a time when um, the emerging church in America and in England at the time was being taken apart by established church leaders who basically saw them as kind of going down heretical pathways. Yep. And they were largely concerned in those contexts, particularly in America, with renewal of the church. And there were a whole lot of young people trying to find a place to stand. Quite legitimate, by the way. And then, you know, you had Carson and those dudes going out after them. Very ugly, in my opinion, like a mother eating its young. Mm -hmm. Awful. But nonetheless, their focus was on renewal and trying to find renewed expressions of worship <clears throat> and theology and church. We, we were much more interested in the missionary side which also precipitates renewal, we would say. And so, you know, because it, it, movements of mission create movements of renewal, and I, be, I believe that, I still do. As we engage on the frontiers, we learn things there that you can't learn in other places, and so that becomes formative for the church if it's willing to respond to that. So, <clears throat> so the word missional, yes, of course, was um, was being used very academically at the time, and what I think we did is to take it down a couple of levels to put it in a place where a lot of people who were leading churches who wanted to experiment a bit, I guess, um, were thus introduced to the term. So we kind of mediated it between the academy. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, you know, the, is is the is the term over? I don't think there's a plan B, Jeff. I I don't know where we go if we don't go in the direction of missional. What's our options? Back to church growth. Well, we see where that's leading us. It's not. It's not. It's you know. It's basically peaked out, and we've picked all the low hanging fruit. And I think we have to adopt a missionary stance. Besides the fact that it's our deepest identity, the church is missional by its nature, which is what the kind of the theologians rediscovered. That mission isn't so much a function of the church; it's part of the person of God. It's who God is, not what the church does. And mission derives from theology, not ecclesiology. Now that's something we, we can't bypass that. Um, but um, I don't, because the word was adopted in the commas by so many. Once everything became missional, then nothing became missional, and that's been the problem of it. It's been we've been inoculated. That's highly problematic. And so, Jeff, I think you've intuited this in your question is that for me I now tend to use the word movement because I believe movement is the best expression of the missional mm. and it's very concrete so you can point people to concrete expression which I think is a much more convincing than a simple idea you know which I think theology should convince us because it's got biblical authority in it but it's too conceptual when you talk about movements well movements are made to move they're moving, they're dynamic, and because of that, they have to be on frontiers. They have to be innovative. They have to be adaptive. They're doing all the things that the missional church should do. 
And so that's why I tend to use that word. But I'm not, I've not given up on the word missional. I just don't use it that much because everyone thinks they know what it means. And I'm sure we don't. <laughs> so, yeah. I, by the way, I should warn your audience I'm the Lord of the Long Answer, right? So that's John knows it. And uh, yeah, so long answers, I'm sorry, you'll have to cut me back. Well, I wanted to ask with the word movement, do you find that you have to describe that to people? Do people intuitively know what that means? Because I imagine if you used missional, you'd have to give a definition so that right. you knew you were on the same page. How how does that work in conversation? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Well, do people know what movement is? No, but they can, the word itself suggests something. It's mm -hmm. moving. <laughs> it's a, mm -hmm. And um, it's got a certain energy about it. Joe, one of the... Um, one of the things I'm very intrigued at at the moment, and this is really behind Forgotten Ways, which I talk about latent capacities or latent potentials, but I'm now thinking about this thing of the in, in, in social psychology, there's a thing called the startle reflex. And the startle reflex, uh, it's been tested out. So for instance, play with me, friends. It's a dark night. You're walking on the side of a mountain. You can, you, you can feel the mountain on the side because, you know, the density of it, you know, you know what when you're sensing the world, but you see, you're walking forward and you're trying to grope your way in the dark, and you come into this open area. Again, you can feel this; it's in, it's sense it, and I, this is what I'm appealing to. And then there's a, then you hear a growling of a very big animal uh, near you. So, Jeff, you you still live in Colorado, so in Idaho, yeah. Idaho. Okay, well, you know, maybe you get grizzlies there too. We do, right? and bears there's, and moose. Or a moose, there's a big animal near you and it's growling. So you think, oh my, it's pitch dark, you can't see it. Under these conditions, this theory, and it's been tested, means that you'll be able to, to kind of climb the slope of the mountain in the middle of the night without ever having learned to mountain climb. And I actually think it's a very useful metaphor because what I, I think what I'm trying to appeal to, I think movement is the church of our deepest instincts. It's our instinctive form. So that under conditions, for instance, in China or in other places where persecution takes away the institution of the church, the kind of expressions in, in the formal institution, darned if not every church does, but churches can discover this capacity in themselves, which I think is born out of this instinct that is rises to the surface. And I think that is a movemental form. And... Um, that's why whenever we see that take place, you begin to see movements, you know, startle reflex. I commend it to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's communitas. <clears throat> we, we grasp on to that missional ideology yeah. uh, pretty early on, and it transformed our organization, especially in our approach to church planting. And then of course, into what faith community looks like when you embed someplace, when you start to practice in an area, when you mature, when you disciple, um, and eventually when you hub and extend all, all elements of the dynamic adventure. And the tagline to that book is um, starting and shaping missional churches. Um, and we've added on to that starting and shaping communities of faith that love like Jesus in their neighborhood. Uh, so the paradigm shift took place practically 
in a certain way where it wasn't about starting a service on a Sunday. Uh, it was about embedding and engaging a community and loving the community and letting the community love you back and flipping the behave uh, or believe belong behave on its head uh, where you can belong first. Um, and that's a very slow process. So I don't know that too many people have the patience nowadays in our extraordinarily fast moving, highly connected culture. Uh, how are you seeing that unfold and, and what challenges are people facing in the midst of that? You mean in terms of helping people slowly adapt to a more kind of community-based church? Yeah. There's so many things in our culture that disrupts that idea and at the same time might force us to go in that direction where, you know, I mean, on COVID, for instance, we were forced into to rediscover our communities. Um, and because we couldn't travel, you know, um, and it was a great opportunity, I think, a missed opportunity by and large, by the way. I think mm -hmm. the church didn't grapple with the locality thing because it, again, didn't have a model for it or didn't have a mental picture or paradigm of how you might organize that. And I think that's a travesty, actually. Because, um, again, our most instinctive form is that deeply communal, local, incarnational expression. Um, so, yeah, I mean, am I seeing this? Yes. And, but I have to say I'm, I'm somewhat disappointed that we haven't learned that lesson as I think we should. And so we've kicked the can down the road. Hmm. But I believe that disruption, more disruption is coming our way. And, and I think in a way that it's going to make COVID look very small by mm. comparison. And I'm thinking now of the combination of three forces, the ideological swirl, which we, you know, is very clear in our day, which is very, I think, I mean, this when I say demonically driven, I think it's about the powers and principalities kind of swirling and we are being captivated by them. So people are being weaponized by ideas and, you know, on both sides of the equation but and everywhere else. So, because I think there's the loss of the religious meta-narrative that gives us meaning and people have gone for, you know, smaller ideas that are, you know, more dangerous. Um, but I also, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about AI and the, the impact it's going to have on the educated middle class which is the basic, you know, stable substructure of, of society. And the church is going to come under, wow, it's going to challenge everything because it can really do sermons better than most local pastors can. So, yep. And it's a baby. Just yeah. wait. Yeah. You know? So it's going to be highly disruptive. And I think we must, you know, and the whole middle class, I think, is going to come in for, I think, a yeah, disruption. And then, of course, the now inevitable kind of encroaching dynamic of um, the environment and you know, the crisis that's coming down the line. I don't think we can avoid it now. And we're experiencing it in small ways, but it's only beginning again too. So these things, when they converge, are going to cause, we had better find a more dynamic version of the church mm. than the expensive Sunday-centered you know, you know, 
crowd-centered, audience-centered kind of model. We better have more than that in us. Yeah. And I think we do. Another metaphor, by the way, Jeff. Uh, so um, <clears throat> we all know about the starfish as a kind of a, you know, you know, repeatable kind of, you know, every pie can reproduce a whole, but I've got another one. There's another, there's a, there's an animal called the immortal jellyfish, which is actually all around the world, which you'll, you'll see why is because when this animal, this jellyfish is, finds itself under threat, what it does, is it dissolves into protoplasm and sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And the protoplasm produces thousands of new jellyfish. And it does this when it's under stress, when it's under pressure. So it invests in multiplication and future by actually going small and reproducing. Now, not all those little jellyfish are going to survive, but there will be ones that do. And that's really what what I think, again, is a worthwhile metaphor for us to explore, Mm. is that um, as we experience these disruptive forces, I think one of the challenges is going to be to, to find that capacity to invest in our children and have babies and to, you know, to have lots of them, I guess. So extend our chances of survival. Alan, this is one of the things I like so much about the, your new book, Metanoia, that you've written on. You know, I, I think uh, I'm sure you saw this even living in, in America and talking to churches in the West who are experiencing those initial, the fright of decline. And it's more since COVID and how mission became the silver bullet that was going to get us back on top. And it, you know, I remember uh, in the Forge world, we used to say, you know, a lot of churches are just trying to slap a coat of missional paint on their attractional models. But what you're really talking about in your new book is helping people go through this kind of deconstruction and reconstruction journey that does allow you to embrace death of certainty, death of confidence that I know I have all the right answers um, walk us through maybe a little bit of that that concept of metanoia and how repentance, which is you know metanoia in the Greek, repentance is so much more than the the classic evangelical definition of just a, a volitional turn or a moral turn. You know, I was going this way, I made the 180, now I'm going the other way. But that's often about external behaviors. You're proposing a much deeper understanding of kind of repentance in in your book speak to that a little bit and and why that is so valuable for us as we face these uncharted waters ahead thanks john thanks brother um yeah so this has been (laughs) i'm turning 64 this month okay so just some of the things that you learn as you get older and um and also just the turmoil of the last you know decade i think has forced me to rethink a lot of stuff not a, again, like I said, I still deeply buy into the missional idea. I think there's no plan B. But I think what what I think we've had to do is like I confess that what I've had to do is to re- recognize that much of my work, I wouldn't say all of it, but much of it focusing on like established, often mega churches. This is the Future Travelers Project I was part of. Um, we took about 250 megachurches through this process of what in the metanoia would be the up-curve journey. But all of them were impatient with anything down. I mean, they didn't want to know nothing about that. They would just want to jump the chasm. And uh, I'd say, slow down, cowboy. But no, we weren't going to slow down. We had a year to get this right. And, and I honestly just, I lament this very deeply, that very little change has taken place. And partly is that in, in inoculation factor that I've really I lament that 
because, oh, we've been there, done that, doesn't work. Okay, we tried the missional thing, but no, they didn't really. They didn't really understand it. <clears throat> and because, again, the muscle memory and the kind of the habits of organization and habits of institution were deeply entrenched in the theology and the ecclesiology of the prevailing model. Right, so it was, truthfully, you know, it's been very hard to kind of admit that, but what what the thing that I think God has tapped me on the shoulder for? I don't know if it's a particular gift, but I get to to often observe things that were there hiding in plain sight. Uh, Apes was one of them. You know, it's been there for thousands of years, man. It's like what? Look, we look at the way we do church has got very little to do with it. So I don't know, just maybe the capacity to recover or re restore kind of truths that they were latent in the scriptures already, but were forgotten, forgotten ways, I guess. And so metanoia is one of them. And gosh, are we limited down to, you know, like you've already mentioned, John, about repentance being something about a moral, and you know, moral kind of issue that we have with God. And usually something you want to get over as quickly as you can, because it's unpleasant. I don't want to confess my sins very long. It's not pleasant to be shamed, you know, and to be guilty. So we want to get it done with. And, but that's pretty much our limited view of repentance. And often in the evangelical world, we think it's when you first became a Christian. We repented then. Well, you did, but it, it's this ongoing dynamic. So so what I've, you know, drove me to rediscover this, the, the fact that the Bible, you know, the Old Testament has this notion of turning. You've already mentioned that, the conversion idea. That shuv and teshuvah means turn or return. And it's deeply entrenched in 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 uh, in the biblical, you know, in the Old Testament narratives. I mean, hugely. So it's deeply there. And this idea of returning to God, of the, there are two ways you can follow. You've got to go the God way. This is drawn into the New Testament. This is brought in because they're Jews, basically thinking from within Jewish worldview. But but the Greek idea comes to play as well. So this enhances the really basic conversion approach with the word metanoia. And the word just interprets itself, actually. The meta means above, beyond, over. You know, we, we know that term today. And then noia is thinking or rationality or your mind. Thinking fundamentally differently to the way you currently think. So the best translation, I think, honestly, is paradigm shift. So experience a paradigm shift, a eureka moment, a moment of insight where you, you've, and we all have these, right? We have moments when you don't, you see something, you can't unsee it. It just changes everything. And this is a gift to us that is given part of our spirituality. Not just the, you know, the repentance of sin, but the idea of kind of this ongoing learning journey of metanoia. I always think about <clears throat> Jesus, the first words of his, you know, for his formal ministries, kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the word repent is metanoia. And why does he say that? Is because if you don't have a metanoic mind, a mind that is willing to undergo numerous paradigm shifts, you're never, ever going to understand Jesus. And guess what? The people with the hard mind, the hardwired Jewish leaders of the day, who had all figured out, everything boxed up nicely, never got Jesus. And they still don't today because metanoia was not in the game. And I think that now it's for us to kind of undergo 
serious metanoia and to engage it at a, at a deep level and integrate it into our spirituality, but also into our leadership practice and lead our organizations through it as well. It's a gift to us. It's a joy. And it brings the joy of the gospel to us as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so whenever I've repented, when I've experienced repentance deeply, I've always cried. Mm. Because what's happening then is both sides of my brain are working. Mm. And uh, everything's involved. You know, I feel most alive in those moments. Something fundamental has happened. I think this idea of like getting the church into that moment where we can experience that, wow, you know, God, move on us. And it happens in revivals on occasion then. It just settles down to back to standards. When my worry with the whole Asbury thing, well, unless they had a paradigm shift, it's all going to go back to church growth. Mm. And it guess what? Nothing's happened. And no movement, as far as I'm aware, that's come out of it. That's just sad to me. Anyway, yeah. I'm rambling. I appreciate in the book too the your recognition that there's an individual metanoia journey and then also an organizational one. And um you know, I sat with some leaders recently and we came up with a list of like 15 different paradigms that in many ways we need to repent of, you know, that have been around now in the Western church and church growth movement. But one of the ones that I think um, is being addressed and called out more and more is kind of the the Western church's relationship with power and especially as it relates to leadership and um, you know, even in the news this week in L.A., another kind of high profile L.A. pastor is on leave and being investigated for inappropriate texts and things. And, you know, as someone who lived in that megachurch world for 10 years and felt it beginning to corrupt even my own soul. Um, I mean, how do leaders who find themselves in that sort of hierarchical, charismatic, you know, I've heard you refer to as the sage on the stage, you know, where there's such power that naturally comes from being in front of thousands of people every week and having them listen to your every word and that influence that you have. If a leader finds himself in that system, how do they go through that individual repentance to try to protect themselves and their churches from these sort of maybe even demonic systems of power that are leading to, you know, failure in the leaders and then often wounding in the communities around them? Well, you're just asking small questions today, John. <laughs> I'd be interested in, in in how you would would you know your take on that would be very interesting to me. Um, well, for one, the answer is in the system. So, for one, we have to become systems aware, and this is partly the process of metanoia, the process of going down the you, you guys know it as the, the you know the curve because you've read the book, but there's a down curve which is the unlearning, the apophatic via negativa, the way of unlearning and unknowing. Um, but also leads us to consciousness of ourselves and our impact upon others. And you become conscious, which is sometimes for the first time for a lot of people, that there are deep problems in the system. So one of the, the disciplines we do in the process to help people think about the system and the problematics in it, what is boosting, what is blocking, we help you know people become aware. And it's very, very important. If you're going to change something, you have to first become aware of it. And so having it slowed down together with other leaders, and I think it's important to take the leaders through this together, is to go through a process over time. Could take, hey, listen, God's waited for us you know, 2,000 years to get our act together. I think he can wait five more years. If it takes five years, big deal. Let's do it. 
And if it takes two years, even better. But it's going to take a bit of time to take an average established church in America or anywhere, you know, in the, in the Western context at least, through an unlearning journey where we begin to repent slowly and surely of these little things that we've committed ourselves to. And then our addiction to power. You know, the fact is that the crowd, you know, there's a there's a, there's a symbiotic bad, what's the word, uh, you know, codependent relationship between a crowd and the, and the leader who kind of feeds into it. They they both need each other, and it's a very dark system. So we we built it that way, you know. So it's built on the pulpit. I say, you know, most people don't plant churches. Uh, if you're from a reformed tradition, you're planting pulpits. You know, you don't plant a church. The church is not a pulpit. Pulpit might be one aspect, but it's, you know, take the pulpit out and think again about what, how much more is church more beyond the Sunday expression or beyond the preacher's pulpit or the teaching moment or whatever it is we want to call that. There's so much more to what, you know, our task and what we've been given. Why wouldn't we explore those dimensions? You know, I don't know, but John, you're, your take, right? Because you, you're leading a lot of people in change in this regard as well. What are you learning? Yeah, you know, um, I in my journey, and I think one of the phrases that became so meaningful to me, and it wasn't just rooted in power as a um, kind of point leader. It was also rooted in my in my own discovery around whiteness and maleness, and you know, all the other ways that I was being centered was. Just the word decentering and learning, you know, where are there opportunities for me as a leader to decenter myself so that I can center others? And so, you know, if whether that's centering a woman, centering voices of color, centering non-professional gifts on a Sunday in teaching, you know, cutting my number of Sundays way back was significant for me. Um, and then and then centering my individual giftings, which are very apostolic evangelistic and do great on a stage, so to speak, and trying to decenter those gifts in order to center um, the fullness of, of APEST in a leadership team. And, you know, that's why that 5Q book was so valuable for me to understand that my bias was to see everything in life through the lens of my, my two primary gifts. Um, and then without realizing it to shape a community into my own image rather than the image of Jesus, you know? And so having to say, who's got that prophetic shepherding teaching gift that I can center on a more regular basis so that we look more like Jesus and less just like John, so to speak. Not that John's bad. Right. <laughs> hey John, listen, by the way, and I say a testimony, bro, to you, because you were my pastor and I was at Ecclesia Hollywood, and you did this, and it was so impressive uh, you know, to be able to, you, you, you know, quickly shift and change and like, to, you know, give away your pulpit and you actually demonstrated the very thing you've just talked about now. So kudos to you, brother, because I think you really are good at that. And even though it's been painful for you again, in some ways, you know, yeah, thank but you, there's so much which the system has to unlearn to even recognize the Jesus nature of what you did and what you're doing. Um, Amen to that. Thank you for saying that, Alan. That's Yeah, no, he, he's, he was poetry emotion and honestly one of the best preachers I've ever encountered. If anyone wanted to build something on the pulpit, he could have done that. Yeah. But he he very deliberately tried to move away from that, which is a very, very brave move. Yeah. Alan, one of the things we've been talking about in, in other 
venues, uh, which I'm participating in right now with movement leader collectors, uh, collector in, uh, anyway, the, yes, <laughs> um, collective, thank you. <laughs> but getting back to this concept of, of metanoia, a couple of things that, that you've stressed in that is the necessity or even the forming in nature of hardship. Um, so, I mean, John, you just kind of mentioned that a little bit too, but, but part of this process is engaging with the hardship and not being um, consumed with comfort and safety. So speak to how that works in the whole process. Yeah, this goes to this idea of disruption again, maybe, but this, your name is Communitas, right? But what precipitates Communitas is this issue of liminality. Yeah. yeah. The conditions of risk, danger, ordeal, challenge, disorientation, marginalization, um, humiliation. Um, these things that happen in the course of life that that when you do them together with groups of people, it can be done individually, of course, but when they're done together, it pre precipitates a new way of relating together. So communitas is that what emerges out of that ordeal, challenge, danger, disorientation experience. And I just think, you know, we, we as a church have tended to be organized much more around safety, security, comfort, and convenience, because those are the middle class pursuits, you know, consumerism, um, which again is part, ah, gosh, that's a whole different ballgame, right? That is an issue. Yeah. The non-discipleship of the church, you know, built around a very narrowed understanding of the gospel that calls for nothing but belief, no response of giving your life. We're perfectly designed to produce what we're currently producing. We produce non-discipleship and you cannot do anything with non-disciples. Jesus can tell 12, 12 disciples and change the world. He can't do that with 12,000 consumers. Hmm. And so I think that's a big issue to address, you know, one that, you know, the, this, oh man, gosh, this has led me to a very difficult space personally. Uh, let me say it. Let me go out and um, see what you guys think of it. Correct me if you think I'm in danger here of going astray. I think we we centered around the wrong thing. And, you know, well, I believe very strongly in Jesus-centeredness. I think, like, I can find no other center that is the legitimate center of the church. The problem is that most evangelicals are centered around the evangel. And I worked with Tim Keller, beautiful man, honestly, top class, best of, best of evangelical, wonderful man. But that's the best of. And he talked about gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that. And I think I would say to him, where are we ever told to be gospel-centered in the scripture? Mm. I mean, I'm, the gospel's important. I'm not diminishing it, but it's not the center. And what we've done is created, put a secondary truth and popped out the primary truth. And, and Jesus has taken second stage to the gospel. I'm thinking, that's not good for us. And we're perfectly designed to produce what we're currently producing. So I say the thing this way, this very visual. If you wanted to produce V8 engines, you've got a production line and there's V8 engines going to happen down that side. But on that side, you're having, you know, light bulbs popping out on the other side. Well, that's not working, right? Something's going wrong in the production line. You have to get under the hood to see what's in the system that's producing light bulbs and not V8 engines, right? That's 
would be right. And I think that's what we've got to do. I think one of the big issues in our day, folks, is this, is that we have to find a way back to recenter around Jesus. And I mean this not piously. I mean taking Jesus as the absolute definitive center and defining center of the, of the, of the, of the church and our theology, the re-Jesusing dynamic. Uh, I think that this is the most fundamental recalibration that we can make in our time. And if putting Jesus as Lord, not just the Savior, but also as Lord back in the equation. So I don't know. Do you think I'm, you know, in trouble here? No. <laughs> I, I think you're right on. And, and I was I was just late earlier this morning in a conversation with a group of people on the Movement Leaders Collective around this idea of metanoia and Jesus is Jesus is Lord being in the center. And then you've got the spokes that go to other elements like liminality and communitas. And we could go through all of them. But but what came up in this discussion group was uh, a woman saying, I've really been looking at the center of Jesus as Lord and evaluating that. And my confession was, well, everybody would would ascribe to that. I mean, Jesus is Lord. So let's look at the other things around it where, where yeah. we're not performing well and work on those things. Uh, but man, we sure miss it. Uh, because what ended up happening to me in this conversation was, you know, actually Jesus as Lord is, is not in the center. Our system is in the center. Trying to produce these other things around the, the center, right? But yeah. if we if we miss it, even by just a half a degree, then, you know, the output's yeah. going to be light bulbs and not V8 engines. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, there's this notion of brand capture or, you know, in, in you know, that when, um, example, in South Africa, there was in the previous government, <clears throat> there was this billionaire family that pretty much did what they called state capture. They kind of captured, they pretty much co-opted the state to their purposes. And, uh, um, you know, <laughs> to, to very dark ends, by the way. So, but I wonder whether, you know, so like what, what when churches use the name Jesus, it kind of is a bit of that kind of brand capture thing. They're kind of using the name Jesus, but without the kind of the, the logic and the, the centrality of the person as he represents himself to us. It's much more kind of doctrinally refined Yes, of course you believe in Jesus, Lord, but, you, but do you really existentially believe that? Where you refer all your actions to the Lord, you know, and submit to the kingdom of God as it expresses itself in Jesus. Well, that's a different ballgame, and much of our practices are not that at all. And uh, if we were honest, and I think, I think again, we're perfectly designed to produce, you know, what we're currently producing, which is not that impressive. <laughs> Look, it's... God uses it. I'm not trying to say he doesn't. But then, you know, I'm just not sure if it's what he started us to be in the, in the long run. Is this really it? This is it? This is, the, this is the peak? And I think there's so much more involved in being a Jesus follower and a Jesus movement than what we've currently produced. So I think our work's still cut out for us. Your comments, guys, on that, you know, your insights. Indeed. Our work is still cut out for us. And, and I think that if you look at the church in the majority world, um, the place where the church is flourishing now and has flourished in the last couple hundred years is places where 
the church is not um, in bed with power and state and government and even wealth, right? And so there's a, you know, the church does almost, it's almost the best forms of the church tend to be uh, on the margins of culture rather than the mainstream. And I think one of the, you know, I have these conversations with people similar to you where I'm kind of like, hey, I, I tell me if you think this is crazy, but I actually think the church in Christendom is in a state of decline, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, so many people are trying to grasp onto power and make sure we don't lose it, and there are values to um, you know, Christians in places of authority and leadership and things like that, but it, it has not produced what we would want it to produce in the local church. Uh, and so, you know, I do wonder if that kind of a return to some of the cultural realities of more of a first century will produce a more authentic and, and vibrant expression of discipleship than what we're producing now with, as you're calling it, kind of middle-class cultural values. Yeah, well said. Yep. And to Alan's I've point, this very deeply. Isn't... Sorry, Joy. No, go ahead. No, no, I just said I've deeply lamented, feel this very, very deeply. I've been quite depressed, actually, to be honest. I'm uh, coming out of it now, thank God, but it's been quite difficult. Just the morning, I mean, gosh, we've had 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years of the Bible, 2,000 years of church, 2,000 years of formation, whatever it is we want, theology. And look at us. I think it's just, you know, it's, it's. I'm just saying it's not acceptable. We need to do better. And it's not like in a bad way I'm saying it. It's just it has to be more than what we've currently got. And I think we have to take responsibility as leaders and do something about it. And we've got to be faithful, you know, in our time. I don't know. Joy, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry I butted in. No, it's helpful. Well, and to your point, I think what, what John is actually saying is if we followed that example of Jesus, it wouldn't be about power. It, it was very decentralized. And yeah. <clears throat> the times that we see movement happen, it's generally when people who have power give it away or or stay on the underside of it and support yeah. those who are under there with them. Yeah, good point. That's very other than consumerism and capitalism. Yeah, yeah you've got to love Jesus for that, right, isn't it? You invest in these very unlikely people. You know, the 40 or 70 were they They were all pretty unlikely, not star recruits. <laughs> right. None of them. And yet, you know, and talk about the risk. He puts the whole thing on them. You say, well, you know, you guys are going to get this done. Well, 2,000 years later, we still try it or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's a risk. Yeah. Alan, do you think there's room here for incremental change in a system? Or does it have to be completely adaptive? Like we have to throw everything out and start from scratch again? Um. No, I do believe that you can do this incrementally, but we have to have a, a plan, a map, and a process. What, what? Again, as a leader, I was never trained in change processing. Um, in fact, I didn't get much training in leadership at all. So most, you know, most people go through seminary, studying the Bible and theology and church history. It's my classic British-style kind of training was all very academic and. Very little to do with stuff that you're going to have to do in the local church. I never really, never, not one subject related to leadership. And, um, <clears throat> but I think that one of the things we do lack is a kind of good sense of, 
process and patience and and how inseminating a certain idea that can change things, you know, just taking a journey of like seeing how like literally sometimes a little idea when when taken seriously can produce completely different consequences over here. But being very deliberate about it and having a vision for it. And that's again what we try and do on that metanoia journey is eventually it's the idea of getting to movement, which is a very powerful form of church. But this having this process, now we do it in a six-month learning, you know, the lab is six months, but really the process is much more. We're just priming people to um, to be able to take a journey or, you know, to take an organization or church through a learning journey that follows something of that map. If it's not that, some other one that we have that gets to the core and gets to reshape um, the system underneath, you know, redesign the system. You know, we've got to get under the hood, as I've mentioned. So got to have a process for that. So it can be incremental, and then sometimes, yeah, it's going to sometimes be cataclysmic. Um, and if that doesn't change us, I think, you know, I don't I think we're done, you know. So, yeah. Well, Alan, what's, what's bringing you the most life? What's most life-giving to you right now where you find yourself? Well, uh, <clears throat> so Jeff, my... My last 10 years, strangely enough, even though they've been somewhat angsty, has also been very rich in terms of prayer. Mm. So I, you know, um, and this was starting, John, I mean, when I was still living in in, in L.A., where I decided at, around, when I turned around 50, I didn't know how to pray. I, I mean, I, I was brought to the Lord by Pentecost so I could pray for, you know, hands over their heads and all that. I could evangelical enough to be able to pray, you know, on behalf of someone, you know, kind of the shopping list prayers. Never really good at either of those, by the way, I have to confess, but I didn't know how to relate to God. I didn't know have any, you know, way of which, you know, I didn't know what was involved in that and how you maintain that and how you grow in it. And so I set myself out on a journey to teach myself, which, you know, has led to incredible amounts of personal renewal that has given me a huge amount of life. Hmm. And also has created, funny enough, you know, as that's increased, my prophetic side is also, the closer I've got to God, the more angst I feel with the world because I feel it's so at odds with God. And I, so that's been quite painful on that hand. I think there was some consciousness of God can bring sometimes a, a pain because you begin to participate in what God experiences with the world, you know, which is pain. Pathos, as Abraham Heschel says. That's been very good. But the other thing, you know, honestly, when I, I've just come back from a trip from North America, and I love where I end up in certain places, and I think, my gosh, it's you get to see real stuff on the ground that is very hopeful, and I love it, and it gives me life. And I realize, yes, this is my people, and this is what I'm, I'm here for. I want to serve that. So I've just come back. I'm very inspired, you know. But what I've seen, and very hope, very hopeful. You know, the seeds in the ashes. You know, what the, the the whole thing's a mess, but there are some seeds there that contain the potential for the future. Yeah. I've always loved the idea of seeds. A seed can go, lie dormant for thousands of years, even, and under certain conditions, re, and can create all kinds of wonderful things. So I like the idea of seeds, and I think 
that's useful. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that imagery. You, uh, for, for those listening who are part of the Communitas family or, or have some experience with Communitas, you have been around our organization for quite some time and have been very influential. What, what words of uh, encouragement or prophecy or admonition, what would, what would you say to us and what we're engaged in? Well, you know what I always loved about Communitas, formerly known as Christian Associates? Mm -hmm. It was just a happy group of people, very good, uh, graciously engaged people, and like at peace with one another in a good way, and always able to have some fun, keep the party up. And I think that's really important. I think Jesus is party animal. The other thing about Jesus Lord is when you put Jesus Lord, well, you know, you like to party. <laughs> as opposed to that. so there's some good size to this thing so i've loved that side of um and keep that alive because that also brings joy and connection and is a form of community us in itself mm. bring the party continue to bring the party that'd be a good thing and then i would say you know you're missionaries and you you're taking the gospel you're taking the church into difficult spaces um I think, you know, distill your learnings and teach us, you know, teach the rest of the church because you, you can bring some learning to the equation that the established, more static church can really do with, you know, and I think maybe formulate the core ideas that drive you now. I think you, you're very much mature enough to do so. You can use all your epistemology, Jeff. Mm -hmm. You know, the three of you together, write something. Uh, give us a manifesto that really makes sense, both for your for your organization, as well as for the rest of us, you know, that becomes useful. So maybe that's a challenge. But I've loved, I love Communitas. I think it's a great group of people, always been a joy to be with. And I consider many of them friends, very good friends. Yeah. yeah. Likewise. John, Joy, any other questions for Alan at this point? No, I'm just going to envision seeds as little jellyfish that are blooming in the bottom of the ocean, coming up from the depths. <laughs> Immortal jellyfish. Yes. Look it up. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I'd like to tee uh, Alan up on one thing I've heard him say before, but, you know, we do have people listening to this podcast who are pioneering, and whether that's thinking about church planting or missional community starting um, and, you know, wrestling with those the the whole idea of Christology leading to missiology, leading to ecclesiology, and not starting with church forms. And yet I, I keep sensing this draw towards the service, the gathering. And I, Alan, I, I just love your analogy around learning how to play chess. And I wonder if you would just share that and then maybe just speak to those pioneers who are wondering, you know, what role does the the, the central gathering play in these new expressions of church that we might be trying to start? Well, um, so the metaphor being referred to there is if you want to learn the game of chess, uh, the suggestion is you take your queen out first. Now, what's going to happen is that your opponent will keep the queen, which means they're going to cream you for a long time. But what's going to happen under those conditions, if you stick at it, is you're going to have to, you'll learn what the other chess pieces can do. And then when you can actually win the game of chess without a queen, you put your queen back in, you're going to be a champion. Because, you know, the danger and the metaphor is that you over-rely on your strengths. 
and you forget about all the other things that you, that are, can be real strengths if you use learn how to play them properly. I think that you know that it's quite a powerful metaphor, and I think it's very useful. That, that you know when you're thinking about most churches don't plant churches. I've already said already they plant a pulpit or they plant if you're charismatic a worship service an experience, um, which is usually Sunday based. Whatever your queen is, just even as a mental exercise, take it out. But I would suggest try it for a month. Take the queen out and forces you to do it for a few months. And what's going to happen is that some people who are so used to that are going to come and say, if you don't put it back in, I'm leaving. But it's going to force you to think about what are the other elements of Ecclesia that come into play? Can I get better at that? And then you can put your queen back in because, you know what, sometimes you do need to gather and worship and it's a good thing. So I think that's one thing I'd say. And I'd say for people, if you want to go to something more primitive in the sense of the movemental form, don't plant churches, plant movements. Plant something that can scale with a vision of scalability built right in from the beginning. So that's a different metaphor again. So don't plant a church, plant a movement. Because when we think of church, oh, darn, we know exactly what that looks like. Don't we? It's always got pews. It's always got a pulpit. It's always got a platform. It always looks kind of like that, you know. So we said, don't plan a church, plan a movement. The other thing I'll say, don't plan a church, plant the gospel. Plant the Jesus story and let Jesus build the church. Truth is, we're never actually told to plant churches in Scripture. I know it's strange, and I do believe in church planting, so don't get me wrong. But we're never commanded to because we actually plant the gospel story, the Jesus story, and then Jesus is the builder of the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that. So take him at his promises and try again. Just start with something more primal. And the gospel is, you know, the, the Jesus story is where you should start. And let it, let it evolve from there. You know, yes, you'll end up with a church. A church is going to have some features to it that are common in all ecclesia. These are called the marks of the church. You can find them. But uh, you don't have to impose an understanding of the church and what you're doing. Start from something with relational fabric how the gospel begins to bond people together and see what happens and see what you know what you can produce out of that. Experiment. And if you don't want to do it with everything, do it at least part of what you're doing. Actually, have an R&D department in every church. You should experiment in some form in every ecclesia, not have to just rely on the singular form. Yeah, so. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for that. Alan, you're engaged in so many different things and ways that people can engage with uh, with you or with organizations that you help lead. Um, and we'll put all of that in the show notes. But are, are there any are there a couple of things you metanoia, your book, which is uh, fantastic. I recommend everybody read it. Uh, anything else you'd like to highlight at this point? No, <clears throat> yeah. No, I think, you know, the ones that you're probably going to put up there, 5Q and Forge and all those things. Um, MLC is really my, what I'm focusing on at the moment, but it's more around a, a select group of people who are, move, are kind of movement-ready or movements in the making, don't need to be convinced. Mm. And then my job is to invest the rest of my life into that kind of, particularly into that group of people, not exclusively, but mainly. So... That's what I'm doing. Um, Metanoia is, is the most recent book. The one prior to that, which actually unfortunately was released when COVID went, came out, hmm. it's called Reformation. Actually, John 
did an early version of it and said it's too complex for people to read. But here's the thing. Remember you said it was like most pastors are going to be too impatient with it. The problem is that what's happening in the meantime, you've got to, all those people going through all these deconstruction journeys. Yeah. And that book is perfectly positioned to speak into that and preempt some of the possible, you know, the, some of the problematics. Um, I worry about this, that you've got like millions of people leaving the church, good people who no longer can buy in on the standard expression. And I don't entirely blame them. You know, the, so they are deconstructing. It's quite appropriate. It's part of the metanoia journey. The problem is that they have no reconstructed process. Right. And what's going to happen to those people? They're going to end up either away from faith or becoming, you know, affirming of every possible, you know, sexual expression. Or It's going to be crazy. And we need to get ahead of that game. And I would say, you know, that book really does give a way forward, which is really reframing, which is such a, you're reframing everything in a bigger frame, seeing God, God, people, gospel, bigger, greater, ever greater, you know. So it puts it in a bigger frame. So uh, I encourage people to check that one out too. Good. Yeah, I, I did appreciate that viewpoint. And so many of the folks that we engage with uh, are find themselves in that place of wanting true authentic community, but not wanting anything to do with the form of church they grew up in. So yeah. we've got a huge credibility problem, Jeff. Mm. You now when people now look at the church and think, yeah, you know, they might like Jesus still. They've got Jesus, you know. But church, I mean, even Christians are having a hard time with it. I think this is this is problematic. We need to, we really do need to do something about it. You know, yeah. we need to reframe. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, my friend, five years ago, you, uh, I, I want to say you made a promise to me that we would experience Burning Man together at some point. And uh, I want to hold you. I want to hold you to that. So I've got yeah. one more in me. I was going to go this year. I'm so glad I didn't. Oh wow, it was that bad. I watched that really badly. But uh, I've got one more. So let's do it. Okay, you've got one more, and I think I have one only. So <laughs> <laughs> outstanding, <laughs> Alan. It's always a huge joy and pleasure to to be with you to converse with you, and thank you for. Um, all that you've meant to our organization and I know the impact that you're having on people listening. So um, thank you, my friend. Thanks for having me.